things that have lasting impact on you know, serious stuff take time. And so you know, when people are saying everything moves fast in crypto, what they're really saying is everything that anyone is paying attention to right now is kind of the simple stuff. And, and often that's the stuff that's a little bit less, a uh, bit more disingenuous. I'm Rudy Dogum, and this is Wholesome Crypto. Here I speak with crypto experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs to find out what personally led them to the path of cryptocurrency. We all know you as the founder of Vega Protocol, and I'd love to dive into that and more about it, but I want to keep that care at the end. I want to really know more about Barney and how Barney lived his life and what he was doing and how you even first heard about crypto. So my first question for you would be, where was Barney before ever even hearing about Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency? Yeah, um, I was uh, working in sort of traditional finance, um, building and designing trading systems and risk systems and things like that. So um, sort of in some ways similar to, to what we do now with Vega, but in other ways, very, very different. Mm -hmm. And what got you into that finance industry? Was that something in the family or you just found that trading you know, money is pretty fun? <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm a, I sort of studied computer science and was interested in kind of, I guess, difficult computer science problems and difficult technical problems. Um, I think probably in, in the UK, unless you've got sort of specialist knowledge on you know, physics or some kind of science or hard science or engineering, then, um, you know, probably one of the best places, certainly you know, back in the early 2000s, where you could get involved in you know, complex and difficult sort of computing problems and and get paid reasonably well to do it and work with with really smart people was in in finance and and trading and capital markets so uh they sort of gravitated towards london and, and and finance and those kind of that sort of work for that reason really mm -hmm. and yeah i mean obviously with financial trading especially in the digital age computer algorithms are a must and a need to to use for that because like you have like so much activity going on so fast and every millisecond matters, which is amazing to me. Like the physical server locations are important for that type of trading. And I'm wondering like, was that even in your like wheelhouse of like, all right, we have to choose the correct servers for any, any like algorithm you create. Um, I, so I was mostly on the side of like the sort of the sell side or the side of exchanges. So like I was mostly working either with investment banks who are sort of operating trading platforms or with exchanges you know, like the London Stock Exchange who were, you know, again, operating platforms. So um, the customers, our customers, the customers of those systems were very much thinking those things and you know, paying for co-location and all of that. But for us, uh, it was about enabling whatever those customers needed. So, you know, whether it was, you know, the latency time between uh, receiving a, you know, a message and instruction to the market and actually processing it and responding uh, has a big impact. So. You know, if I'm a trader, there's obviously part of it. It's like I want to be located next to the exchange. Um, the round trip time might might take you know, 10 milliseconds, might take a microsecond, depends on where my server is. Um, but then if it takes me five microseconds to send the data to the exchange, but then the exchange doesn't reply for a second, um, then I'm more restricted in what I can do and, and how much of many orders I'll place. And, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing in that in the current way the markets are set up, that's sort of, that lower latency is an advantage, which you can use to sort of exploit the market in a way. It's kind of the front running flash boy stuff. Um, it's not clear, like once you get below a certain amount of latency, probably you know, even on the order of a few seconds, it's not really clear there's much uh, social or economic value to that. It's really just sort of 
traders taking money off each other and off of other market participants. And um, it's one of the things that attracted me to crypto really was um, sort of the opportunity to replace this kind of zero sum game with a bunch of rich people spending a lot of money to take money off of unsuspecting others with something uh, perhaps a little bit fairer. Yeah, exactly. So when you fr when did you first hear about uh, crypto? What, was it a friend uh, or it was it was Bitcoin and, and it was probably sort of online technical forums, things like Hacker News and um, yeah, the white paper for Bitcoin. And you know, I think the first few times I ever ran the Bitcoin software, I see it's probably you'd run the software on your laptop and you would mine some fraction of a Bitcoin and it was enough that you could send it and prove it worked, but none of it had any value. Like, you know, this was pretty early on and, and so you weren't even and you weren't trying to make money, so you'd sort of not think about that really at all. And um it was that was that was when I first heard about it, but it was probably Ethereum. Um I did do some Bitcoin mining a bit later, a little bit of mining with a friend and a gaming PC. It was almost just a sort of an excuse to buy a good game, very expensive gaming PC. I was like, <laughs> okay, well, we can play games and maybe this thing will kind of like pay for itself. Um, it actually sort of did more than pay for itself, obviously. Um, but also uh, having you know, a little bit of Bitcoin then when people were launching some of these first other sort of tokenized projects and ICOs, you know, even pre-Ethereum pre launching um, meant that you were sort of watching what was going on. And so I mean, ended up investing a little bit in the Ethereum pre-sale and in a couple of other protocols, some most of which lost all, lost all the money, but uh, obviously Ethereum didn't. Um, and so really it was probably that kind of slight sort of weird tangent of mining through to investing into Ethereum pre-sale and then starting to use Ethereum, you know, its early builds and trying to see what all these smart contract things were about uh, was probably the thing that really hooked me in. You know, the Bitcoin bit was kind of interesting, but it was really Ethereum and, and that, that experience that made me sit up and take more notice. Exactly. And, and since you were always in the financial sector, it must have been pretty interesting thinking, oh, like self-sovereignty of money, no governments, no banks. Was that something that was making sense to you? Is that like, this is the right way yeah, to go? I mean, it, it worried me, I guess. Um, I mean, the prior to prior to sort of electronic money was non-electronic money. And it was always just a given that like, if I had a hundred dollars yesterday, that I would still have a hundred dollars today. Yeah. And that I could go anywhere and offer anyone that hundred dollars for anything. And, you know, those things were not things that people questioned whether this was, should be allowed. It was kind of, you just had the money. And, you know, if, if criminals moved lots of money around that they shouldn't have, it was the police had to go and do their investigation. Like, no one had any sort of right to a surveillance system that could kind of tell how much money you had and try and look at what you were doing with it and block it. You know, it was kind of, no one would ever imagine that that would be reasonable. And then slowly but surely, you know, you sort of through the kind of the, the vessel of like you know, payment providers worrying about themselves getting sued for what they were doing and all these kind of things sort of stacking up and reporting requirements slowly, but surely we ended up in this kind of like really extreme surveillance state when it comes to money, much more so than like with the internet for normal sort of you know, communication or content or, you know, encrypted mm -hmm. messaging or whatever. We end up in this really, really weird place where technically you can still have your money and move it around, but most money and useful money now is often digital. Uh, so that was really very, like sort of worrying to me and being, being close to that and seeing it happen, like seeing the reporting requirements, doing the training at banks on, you know, like there are tipping off rules. So like if I receive a hundred thousand dollars for you and you say, yeah, like I sold the car, 
and I don't believe you. Like, not only do I have to report that, but I'm not allowed to tell you that I'm reporting it. Like, I have to, like, keep it quiet. Like, I have to just go and, you know, sort of tell people to start investigating you and not tell you that. So, so it's a really a little bit weird and scary. And so that that side of things, you know, when Bitcoin and stuff came along, it was kind of like, okay, well, if we could, if we could make it so we had all the benefit of electronic money with none of the downsides of it having to be centralized around kind of like surveillance and control, like, I think that would be really good. So that was definitely um, probably, you know, one of the things that made sense to me in terms of like really the internet of money, because the internet was very much like, if I want to communicate with you anywhere on earth, I can, and no one can stop me. And, you know, I'm obviously very pro things like end-to-end -end encryption for that reason, but, you know, that, that made a lot of sense to me and definitely a, a big part of my reasons for going in. So, yeah, I can imagine, especially in that industry, it's just, this is disruptive. If it works, it's going to really change things. If it doesn't, then whatever, another technology just comes and goes. And I, imagine, I can imagine your colleagues and friends that were... You know, I'm sure they probably were aware of it too. They must have been, you know, discussions by the water cooler of what would happen if Bitcoin did succeed. Should we, should we start moving our money into there? Should we go into businesses with the crypto industry? So that must have been interesting. Yeah, I and mean, I think a huge number of people put, uh, even quite early on in finance, started putting bits of money into this. And yeah, probably even many people who tell you they don't like it, you know, they don't like the scams, they don't like the crypto bros, whatever, you know, a lot of people complain um, from a position of extreme privilege because they're in a, you know, stable-ish financial system within the country they live in, but also um, because none of it, none of what's bad is really targeting them. But those people who complain, like, I wouldn't be at all surprised to find that most of them have put something into crypto, you know, probably not their life savings, but certainly I think, especially if they're in finance, a lot of people were, were very interested in this. Most people... Um, a lot of people were pretty predisposed to this. I mean, you know, if, if you're talking to maybe you know, CEOs or lawyers, they maybe think it's a nightmare. Um, but if you talk to traders, I mean, traders traders used to be able to do whatever they wanted. They used to sit in banks trying to make as much money as they could, trading on anything, and then you had all the financial crisis and lots more rules, and they got sort of shut down. They, they stopped having as much fun as they were having, and it's probably for the best that they stopped being allowed to have as much fun because it was a bit disruptive at times. Uh, but yeah, they they moved from um, you can sort of they moved from banks to hedge funds and a huge explosion of sort of hedge funds and smaller funds which could get away with doing more and, and allowing the traders to have more fun and do more creative trading uh, because they have less systemic risk. Like if you're just going to blow up a few rich people's bank balances, no one really cares. If you're going to blow up the global economy when you get it wrong, everyone sort of cares. So uh, it sort of moved to funds, which I think is safer. But um, even then, there's still lots and lots of rules and regulations, and so I think. Um, you know, one interesting thing is that the traders among among the finance system have probably, for the most part, really like crypto because it lets them go back to having fun. <laughs> exactly. What's Wild West now? Uh, so then, the so then you were saying also how Ethereum was a real, you know, key point in kind of finding that well, money can be programmable. You can actually do more than just use it for financial means. <coughs> Well, at what point were you telling yourself, okay, I'm moving from traditional finance to crypto finance and I guess leaving your position to pursue that? Yeah. Um, I mean, the interesting thing is um, Bitcoin on its own, it, it's not useless, but it's almost useless. And what I mean is like, 
if you think that what you want is this decentralized money, if you think that you'd like digital cash, and if you think that those kind of surveillance things are bad, you don't, it doesn't help you very much if you just have Bitcoin because like most of finance isn't money, right? Most of finance isn't cash. Most of finance is like lending and issuing assets and trading those assets and, you know, taking out different types of insurance contracts and derivatives contracts. Finance is huge and some of it is payments and moving money around. But even then you pay it into bank accounts and you have to pay taxes. Like there's so much that goes on that if you just move, if you just replace, you know, pounds or dollars with Bitcoin and don't do anything else, then all of the surveillance will still be there because all of finance, the rest of finance will be surveilled and you'll have to engage with it when you get a mortgage or borrow money or have a credit card or whatever else you do. So it sort of seemed to me like Bitcoin was an interesting experiment and useful on the edges. It's kind of like a, you know, if you were in a very corrupt regime or something, maybe you could use it to exfiltrate money from that country or whatever. But it also didn't seem like it was going to be world changing for the rest of us because of that. And, you know, as, a, as Ethereum kind of started to demonstrate that you could make these sort of programmable contracts. And at the time, you know, when, when Ethereum got announced, you know, there was Nick Zappos writing about smart contracts as well, and Ethereum's announcement. And there was another, of course, something like MasterCard. There's a few others that, some of which I put like a you know, $1,000 worth of Bitcoin into as well, and all of those failed, really. There were a few things going on that were trying to build this like computational layer. Um, and people started to think about the idea of things like decentralized exchanges. And, um, you know, there was a time when I was in finance where I wrote a sort of presentation of like what parts of finance could we decentralize and sort of kind of this was after Ethereum launched. It was kind of like, yeah, we probably can't really decentralize most of it because Ethereum is not very fast and it's quite expensive in terms of transaction fees. And that was sort of where I stopped. And then I'd, um, I ended up leaving, um, leaving finance anyway. It's, sort of decided that getting more senior would make my job more boring and um, try, decided to start to try and start a company doing sort of micro subscriptions and micro payments, uh, initially not using cryptocurrencies or anything. And um, yeah, while I was doing that, I met uh, Ramsey, my co-founder at Vega, and sort of we started talking and he was friends with some researchers who had been researching kind of proof of stake and you know, blockchain performance and a bunch of other things. And he was really talking to him about what I thought would be interesting about decentralizing finance and about you know, what you could potentially do, but you know, there's, there's, there's kind of what, what can theoretically be done and what can realistically be done with what's available, if that makes sense. Like, you know, as soon as, as they always talk about Turing complete computers, as soon as the concept of the computer was eventually, theoretically, you could have like Call of Duty. But in throughout the 1980s, you couldn't have Call of Duty, right? There was no, there was no capability that was gonna allow games of that fidelity. And so, this was kind of how I felt about the blockchain stuff. I was like, all these things you could theoretically do and they would be great and I would like to work on them. And then we have Ethereum and it can only do 20% of those things. Uh, but it was talking to Ramsey and, and you know, the guys who ended up founding Chainspace and you know, doing, going on to found NIM and, and a bunch of other projects as well. Uh, but talking to them about the research they'd been doing and the things that I'd been interested in and, and that Ramsey had sort of been pushing me on and he was interested in as well. Um, we sort of realized that by doing this kind of app chain thing, which I don't think was called an app chain at the time, but you know, by doing this kind of application specific blockchain, by using proof of stake, by looking at some of this research that was out there, um, you could do these things that I thought you couldn't do. And 
you would have to build a chain yourself and you'd have to build a bridge to Ethereum or, or, or some other chain and a bunch of things you have to do, but they were not, they were not purely theoretical. They were just quite hard. Um, and so that conversation eventually turned into, um, some prototyping and some, you know, we were sort of asking questions about what to do with the, the other startup I mentioned and sort of not failing to raise money with that. And you'd be sort of delivered an MVP, a prototype. It wasn't, wasn't going where we wanted and, and able to make that into a longer term, bigger thing. And we sort of eventually pivoted through, ended up, um, me and my co-founder from the other business came and joined us and still, still here at, um, on Vega as well. And, and ended up sort of prototyping and building and, and deciding to create Vega then. So it was really, um, talking to Ramsey, his conviction about the sort of similar things to me, mine, his interest in the same things. And then, you know, talking to, to Dave and George, who were sort of the main researchers on this, you know, they were at UCL doing this research before they founded the chain space and uh, talking to them and, and generally just working out uh, that actually the things I was thinking of were possible. Um, yeah. And then, so you, you were going into entrepreneurship a little bit, but was that something always like a burning desire in you when you know, working? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether I knew that it was going to be like, I don't think I knew whether I was going to like run the company or found the company, whether I was going to just join something early. I think it sort of depended to me what it was like if, and who it was like, you know, with my previous um, role, I'd been sort of a you know, capital markets, financial services consultant, uh, done a lot of this technical work kind of for a very large consultancy called Accenture. And then, you know, senior executive, I was, you know, very close to, uh, ended up moving to a smaller company called Capco and we had about 60, 65 people in the UK when, when we did that move. And even that was kind of, you know, on the promise and the idea of you know, growing a business, sort of an entrepreneurial idea, but, but I was obviously a much smaller part of that. Uh, but it was that interest there. And, uh, it sort of just turned out, uh, that I couldn't, couldn't, I, when I, when I decided I wanted to leave that, I couldn't find anything else someone else was doing that was exciting enough before I ended up finding sort of something with my friend Ed to do, um, and ended up sort of being an entrepreneur that way. And then, then meeting Ramsey and, you know, but I do think I, I'd thought about it a lot. I'd spend a lot of time reading sort of, you know, books and posts by entrepreneurs and people like Paul Graham and stuff. So I'd sort of been immersed in that sort of tech scene and Silicon Valley scene and, and stuff even, um, you know, even before then. You mentioned Paul Graham. He's definitely someone to read up on if you, if you haven't heard of him, everyone's listening. Um, now that you're, you know, starting to get this idea for Vega is I, I, what was the beginning, uh, I guess, idea white paper for Vega and how, how close is it to being the same today? It's actually really close. Um, you know, the beginning idea was, um, order book, order books are important, um, or something like them. So, um, yeah, you've got this little, this, the AMMs that came along with Uniswap and they saw they're an, a very neat solution to a technical problem. And they're also a neat solution to a financial problem. So you know, a neat solution to a technical problem of Ethereum can't run an order book. Uh, and they're a neat solution to a financial problem, uh, for small markets. Like if you have a very small market that you're just creating and no one really particularly wants to provide liquidity, then having, uh, an AMM where you don't have to sort of provide, you don't have to do any work to provide liquidity is good, but um, if you are building a real marketplace, then 
trying to algorithmically determine the price rather than allowing the market to sort of you know, use orders to actually determine the price is, is not, not very efficient and, and leads to losses and inefficiencies. And you see this in you know, Uniswap V3. People are, you know, the, the people who make money are the people who actively move their liquidity around based on the market price for the thing. So they're kind of emulating order books at this point. Um, so that was that was a big part of it. We need on-chain order books and we need to work out how to make them fast. Um, we wanted to make it programmable so and permissionless so anyone could create a market and eventually anyone could um, even design their own products. And that's still the goal. We still, we don't have the design your own products in live yet. We still have the create your own market, but we don't have the design your own products. And But yeah, those things are still the same. Um, obviously we've learned a lot and, and gone deeper on the design of many of the things, but you know, matching engines and order books are very, very well understood and you know, margin margins and closeouts and all those things. And most of that stuff is pretty standard. It's, it's standard finance. It's standard. It's well understood. Um, not much has changed there. The things that have changed and evolved are things like it's the liquidity protocol. You know, we made a change towards the end of last year um, to the liquidity protocol to make sure that it was more um, more attractive and, and better suited the needs of, of market makers and enabled them to manage risk better. So we've been learning a lot. But the, the, and you know, adding features to the list of things we want is probably the main way it changes. Like you discover that you want hybrid liquidity, you want more types of Oracle, you want yeah, a bunch of different things. So features get added to the roadmap. Um, but in general, like if you read the white paper now, uh, you'll find that it mostly describes what we want to, what we either have built or will build, will build soon. Um, we'll probably do a refresh like a V2 white paper once um, you know, trading's live in mainnet and stuff. And, and once we're starting to think about the kind of big V2 upgrade, um, maybe like for next year. So sometime later in the year, we'll probably do a refresh of the white paper, but it's still pretty much, uh, pretty much holds true. And now that you're in the crypto industry for a while and building on it, um, what is a crypto pet peeve that you have? Oh, wow. Where do you start with that one? Um, I mean, <laughs> I think there's a, there's a whole industry of sort of cynical, um, very sort of price action based, very like, you know, not very, not very connected to fundamentals. Um, there's kind of, there's a whole thing that goes on around tokens and stuff. And, you know, you sort of get people tokens. The, the whole thing is people get tokens for a discount. They launch. It's not, it's not even the bits that, even the things that aren't intentionally like a pump and dump. There's like such an industry of supporters of kind of, you know, in quotes, people who say they're VCs and people who support this whole thing. And, and there's just not enough honesty, I would say, even between often like quite technical founders and people doing really good stuff as to what's going on. And, and it sort of has led to all kinds of distortions. And I think many of those distortions have been playing out the last few months. And yep. the, there are a few problems with that. One is that you end up having to be part of that industry because you can't, you, you have a token and it's an ERC20 and everyone from exchanges, whatever, you know, is playing that game. And so you have to be associated with some of it just by, you know, sort of by name and by, by brand recognition of the whole industry. Um, it causes people to, you know, to, to think more negatively of, of the space and to think more negatively of the, you know, the goals and ambitions of the people doing stuff. Uh, and then every so often it breaks really spectacularly. So I think, you know, that whole thing, I think it would be, it would be great if people were, you know, certainly pre 2017, there was much of a, a different sort of attitude around some of the projects and the way people raise money and thought about the industry. And I think it was healthier back then. Um, not that it's necessarily easy to go back, but certainly some of that stuff in the last couple of years has been difficult. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and being in crypto for so long, it's just you see the evolution of uh, the industry and how humans act around it. In the beginning in 20, you know, 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, uh, it was all about, oh, let's build a new money together and be more of a cooperative global system. In 2017, it became big into just raising funds and ICOs and who raised the highest ICO amount. And then I think a lot, I think almost most of those projects are gone. Like very, yeah, yeah I can probably name a handful. The phrase I would say that always peeves me is probably when people say everything moves fast in crypto. And, and the reason I think it's mostly a nonsense phrase is like, uh, it's way simpler to build like a not very interesting, you know, project that's not going to last long or a scam or, you know, anything like, or do a pump and dump. They can do a pump and dump in zero minutes. You can do a, you know, well-executed scam probably with a week or two's work. And, you know, you can build a project that might get a bit of temporary traction and then fade away with a few months work. And then to build, you know, whether it's build Ethereum or build Bitcoin or build, you know, Linux as the open source operating system or build quantum computers, like things that have lasting impact on, you know, serious stuff take time. And so, you know, when people are saying everything moves fast in crypto, what they're really saying is everything that anyone is paying attention to right now is kind of, the simple stuff, and, and often that's the stuff that's a l little bit less, a uh, bit more disingenuous. And so, yeah, so sort of, you know, that's kind of that's kind of where you get to with that stuff. And I think it's been, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. People would, on the one hand, sort of say, oh, you know, why does it take so long to do X? And then on the other yeah. hand, you look at you know, Ethereum and how long it takes to get to proof of stake. But actually, you get there and it's worth it. Like it's yeah. it, these things are hard, and doing them right is. And be, you have to be careful because people can lose money and all of that. But when you get there, it actually changes the game. And I think that's, uh, that's something people lose sight of because there's 20 projects that 10x in the last week or whatever. And, and that's, uh, that's, uh, it's not so great. I wonder, I mean, I wish, now I'm thinking about this, I wish there was a way to create a smart contract that was linked to the product's roadmap Therefore, the funds that was collected could only be unlocked to the team once they accomplish a milestone. And if not, it would be refunded to all the people. I think that's actually a really good idea. I think, um, and I don't know exactly how it worked, but I know like, you know, I have a friend who's building a house and you can get a mortgage to build a house, but the way it works is they don't give you all the money out front. They're like, okay, cool. We'll build the foundations and then we'll give you some more. And then build the walls and put the roof on them. We'll give you some more and you know, do the plumbing. And so you kind of end up in this situation where you get enough money to complete the next phase. But if you turn out to be incompetent, um, you don't lose all the money, for, you know, don't lose all of your investors money. And that's a, it's a really interesting idea to kind of say, well, actually, you know, can we, can we create some milestones or, you know, I guess, I guess the, the default answer would be like to use a DAO somehow and basically say, well, you know, the that's token holders vote on whether or not the money can be given out, but, um, it'll be difficult to do it well because people might suddenly decide that other things are growing faster and they no longer want to honor what they committed to. It's like, it'd be really interesting to work out how to do that in a sort of fair way where, because you both want to allow the investors to get their money back if the project fails, uh, before the project just spent it all on cars or whatever. But you also want the project to have some certainty that the, um, you know, that they're going to get all of the funds if they actually do hit their goals. So that's a really interesting, a really interesting thought. I, I like it. Maybe I'll try to get someone to help build it with me. I'm not a developer <laughs> myself, but I guess now, now's the time to build in the bear market. Uh, yeah. And I certainly think like the idea of being, you know, I think one of the, one of the 
sad things is that um, laws that were intended to do good, you know, things like security laws, effectively killed the decentralized ICO boom. You, know, you had like, yeah. no one thought about any rules. Everyone just said, you know what? We're going to do this project. We're going to create an open source community and everyone can kind of buy a token for this much on chain. And it was kind of, for all its faults, it was sort of innocent and, and, and sort of okay in a way. Um, and that sort of got killed off by you know, securities laws. And instead you got this kind of house of cards of like, you know, jurisdictions in which, which things can be done and companies that know how to navigate it and companies that can list things and companies that can, the VCs that can invest and have a fund in the right place. And so you sort of replaced this kind of decentralized, open democratic thing with, um, with something else. And I think it would be nice to see funding, fundraising evolving crypto again, because I think that, you know, going back, just turning it into the same VC model as tech has always had doesn't seem like it's a, the best place. Yeah. I think it would be great to see something more democratic and more open and, and, and more fair. Yeah. And yeah, but I'm, things like that we have today, like Gitcoin are pretty good and quadru- different times, types of uh, quadratic funding are Pretty yeah, I think Bitcoin and, and some of those sorts of experiments are really interesting, uh, for sure. Um, now that, yeah, you're, again, you're working on Vega and you're building and you're kind of transitioning to a regular like, daytime job, corporate job, it's entrepreneurship, living your own life. How, what, what is going on through your mind? Like, how do you kind of keep sane in, in the crypto industry that's running 24-7 trying to figure out complex problems that really are kind of new and what do you, what do you do kind of to keep saying that in that space? Yeah. I mean, well, the, the complex problems are the interesting bit. I mean, they, 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 they probably help you keep saying, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I would say that the weirdest thing is like in a way, um, in a way, like before I raised money to build Vega, I was very like in crypto in that I was like putting small amounts into a bunch of different things. I was, reading a lot about every project, you know, even things unrelated to things I was ended up working in. Um, I think when you, when you actually start a company, you sort of, you sort of have to quit that. Like you can't do a really good job at something deep and incredibly complex and committed and also spend all your time on Twitter learning about every project and looking at its code. Like I used to yeah. run like every type of node for a new project I could, I would go run the node and configure it. Like you, you can't do that and build something like Vega or pretty much any business. So, uh, the first thing was probably like not, not really participating in you know, the group chats and, you know, the, the sort of the community around just crypto in general, being much, much, much more, um, selective. Um, and then, you know, I think you know, working with good people and working with people you trust is very, very important and, and having a good relationship with those people. And, uh, then occasionally trying to find like a mountain to ski down or hike up or something is, uh, is always helpful. Um, and then, you know, just making sure you see friends and family and, um, yeah, spend a little bit of time occasionally away from the computer screen is how healthy, but, uh, how much time you get for that depends. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny you mentioned skiing because the first, uh, introduction to Vega that I had was going to ETH Denver. And the last day they were raffling off skis. So I just put my name in the raffle and I actually won a pair of skis. And that was like super surprising to me. And there's a picture up on Twitter somewhere about, about that. So that was a lot of fun. And, uh, thank you for that raffle. 
Oh, so very, very glad to uh, hope they've gone to a good home. Uh, have you have you skied on them yet? That's the no. I, I have to put the bindings on, and I'm currently <laughs> traveling. So, but it's, uh, uh, it's nearly the ski. It. It's probably just about the ski season coming up again. So, uh, uh, maybe maybe I'll see you on the slopes in uh, in Denver. Are you going this year in East Denver? Uh, I'm not sure yet. Uh, depends depends on a few things around our launch and uh, and what we've got going on. But uh, if I can, I'll be there. Nice. So for the people who are listening and still kind of asking, so what is Vega and kind of what are derivatives and how is it being solved? Could you give a explanation over that? Yeah. Um, the easiest way to think about Vega is like, um, you know, if you're, if you're in crypto and if you sort of understand the crypto box, obviously, um, you know, a lot of the people I explain Vega to might be in traditional finance and, and they may not get any of this explanation, but it's just assuming you're sort of in crypto, like in, you can see things like you know, BitMEX was probably the first with their uh, futures. Um, I think FTX obviously previously used to have a lot of futures contracts, uh, Binance list them, so uh, a number of other exchanges. Um, the simplest way to think about Vega, if you're a user, is probably to say it's a network that enables people to have a completely decentralized version of that. Uh, so you basically have a, a futures exchange, exchange that's a DEX, more like Uniswap in terms of being decentralized, um, but its features are more like a, a centralized exchange. So you have an order book, you have a, a front end that has you know graphs and everything. You know, it's kind of so it's kind of like a decentralized version of those things. Um, the other exciting thing about that is that that means that you know and DYDX tries to be that. Um, DYDX I think is currently pretty much less decentralized than that. Like you know they still decide what markets are listed. Their order book. I'm not sure if it's currently. Uh, partly on chain or entirely off chain. I know they're building V4, which is going to be very similar to Vega from the sounds of it. Um, I'm sure, they, sure they've been uh, looking at looking at some of our code, who knows? <laughs> but uh, certainly their V4 description is uh, very similar to Vega's. So um, yeah, DYDX are slowly kind of moving in that direction, but I think you know Vega's one of the first attempts to build a completely decentralized um, futures exchange, enables community to create their own products, uh, community liquidity provision as well. So a lot of time on central exchanges and even even some of the decentralized exchanges, you know, the LPs are kind of market makers who have a contract with the exchange and there's some backroom deals and they get paid some money. In Vega, all of that stuff is like opened up and decentralized. So if you have a, the ability to market make and provide prices on an exchange, um, you can connect to the network and you can see what the rewards that are getting paid and what the fees look like and uh, you can... Uh, you, know, you can participate in that you know, equally alongside everyone else. So uh, really, yeah, that's probably the simplest description. Nice. And now I know like being in a bull market is exciting. There's lots of money flowing around. But now that we're you know going into this bear cycle, is there any you know, positive outlook that's coming from this bear cycle? Do you feel like you have time to just quiet down and build and solve complex problems rather than listening to noise? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously some of the stuff which we talked about before as being, you know, pet peeves is amplified in a bear, in a bull market and money flows around. Um, you sort of, your people want to partner with someone who's offering 20% yield or this or that. So, you know, everyone is very excited by all this sort of shiny stuff. Half of it's unsustainable. Um, I think what's been exciting about the kind of the bear market is people have started to look, look at the technical protocols, look at things and say what has a chance of, you know, they're, maybe they're looking for the next bull market and saying, well, if it's two years away, what's being built now that is technically interesting enough and useful enough that it might still be around in two years. Uh, but for whatever reason, you know, people are actually 
more interested to come and talk to us and partner with us and build on us now that some of the other stuff has been sort of exposed as, as not sustainable than, than during the bull market. So I think a lot of those things have become easier. Um, and certainly um, the other thing that's positive for us is that the recent debacle in FTX has really shone a light on um, kind of the need for self-custody. I think, you know, you sort of, if, you, if it's a centralized exchange, you probably want it to be really well regulated because you have to trust these people with your money. So like, if you actually want to use centralized finance, you probably want to use the traditional finance system and have regulations in place to protect you. And if you want to use crypto and you want to be decentralized, you probably really want to, you know, have your keys, have your crypto, have control over that self-custody. And so I think, you know, that's been helpful for us. It's probably been a painful way to, for some people to learn that, but, um, yeah, that's definitely been been helpful for our case to be made um, because it's sort of come at a good time. Exactly. Whenever anyone, like friends or family or anyone, comes to me saying, "Oh, like look what happened to FTX. How do you feel about crypto now?" I'm like, "This is exactly what crypto is solving. Like, this is the problem: centralized exchanges like, yeah, that aren't regulated." I feel a little bit better that they are being exposed. To be honest, like I think exactly. it was, um, and it's kind of interesting. You, you you sort of ended up in this place where people could make do some like regulatory arbitrage to set something up offshore use crypto assets as a means to move the money in and then basically just try and build their own version of what we already have in centralized finance and and siphon money off that way and that so for that to come to an end is not such a big problem exactly it's kind of like relieving okay back to the bare bones and true essence of what crypto is i think the, the biggest the hardest thing is obviously you know a drop in interest means that people who might be interested in what you're doing and, and the protocol uh, might have might not be looking anymore, and, and so maybe your launching and growing could be harder. Um, and then also, you know, raising funds is going to get harder. So you know, at the time when when projects, including Vega, get to the point where they need more money, that's going to be harder to do. So it means you know you've got to got to make sure that you can stay alive for longer, and that your sort of default is that you're going to be alive in one, two, three years time, rather than uh, maybe being able to rely on sort of cash flowing around more freely. Exactly. Yeah. It's, there's definitely a runtime now where the projects that survive the bear market and make it to the next bull will really have a strong lift off. Um, so now that yeah, you're building or learning or in the industry, what is a wholesome crypto moment that you've had something that made you feel good and proud to be part of the crypto industry? Um, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, I think you see a lot of, um, despite all of the kind of negativity and stuff, I think you see a lot of, um, you know, sort of kindness and, and altruism. And you see a lot of people in crypto helping each other, even, even within, you know, with, between competing projects. Um, I'm trying to think of, of the exact sort of example, but there was, you know, there was, there was certainly a time when, um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I've, my mind's gone completely blank, but there was, you know, certainly a time when I saw like, uh, you know, someone or a project was sort of in, in need of something and, and yeah. saw you know, a bunch of people go out of their way to help them, you know, hook them up, make sure they have what they needed and, and really do stuff. And I still think that's really true. Uh, like the openness in crypto between people, like, I, you know, we, we think about all the stuff that's gone bad in crypto recently. But, you know, when I think about traditional finance, the amount that people hide and keep themselves, the lack of knowledge sharing, it's kind of crazy. Um, and now in crypto, everything is open source. Everyone gets to reuse stuff. People help each other. Um, yeah, so I think that's been really, really good. And, and seeing 
you know, within Vega, we had some people who were like moderating our community, for instance, in Ukraine and, um, you know, seeing how the community and the team, you know, responded to that and, and helped them and, you know, the difficult stuff that's been going on there, but just seeing, you know, the crypto community look after people like that is, has been really, really great. Absolutely. The community is like one of my favorite things. It's because if there's someone truly in need and, you know, mean well, that they'll, they'll get some help probably like the crypto community is really helpful in that sense. And especially with the rise of NFTs, some of them are just drug pool projects or just trying to make a community of uh, financial gain. But sometimes there's a handful of communities that really just want to create a public good and create a strong community that helps others. Uh, so I'm thankful for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, the art community, particularly like the art and technical communities of people have been incredibly welcoming. And you, know, you even see things like, um, yeah, some of the DAOs that have been created just to, you know, buy pieces of art or do yeah. things just for, for no other reason than to sort of give people joy and, and create, uh, create interesting stuff. And some of the, some of the things that have gone on in, you know, the NFT community, people like, you know, punk six, five, two, nine and others like that, you know, just, there are people who just really are interested in creating a better future and sharing it with people and, and sort of you know, pushing for things like that. And, and it's, it's great to see that happen at, you know, so, so often across the industry. If crypto never you know, became part of your lifestyle, would you, what would you think you'd be doing right now? It's a good question. Like, I, I mean, I think I sort of started down the sort of startup path. Um, so I think realistically, probably, um, maybe I would be, you know, doing something, uh, probably FinTech related. I imagine, you know, it would probably be, probably be trying to solve similar problems. Cause I think, you know, the, the sort of problems of lack of innovation, lack of democratization, lack of opportunity that exist in finance, you know, there are a few different ways to solve them. And I think crypto is the, the best hope and probably the most complete way to, to fix it. But I think. You know, if you couldn't, if you couldn't do that, you could probably chip away at some of those problems with more, uh, more traditional finance and technology. So I'd probably be, probably be doing that. And, uh, but I'd probably be much more, I'd probably be looking, trying to work out how to retire. Uh, I think, you know, yeah. uh, crypto has got a lot of exciting stuff happening. I'm hoping that we can, uh, you know, do some really positive stuff. I think, uh, if I wasn't working on things that were as exciting and meaningful, I think it would probably be like, you know, trying to work out how to, if not retire, at least how to, to make life really fun. And so, and that's the thing, like now that crypto's here, I'm like, it makes so much sense. Like what else would we be doing now? Like it has to be crypto. Like that's just the natural order of things apparently. Yeah, um, no, totally. Uh, well, Barney, I really appreciate your time uh, today and I'm really excited for Vega. Is there a place like where can everyone find you? Where can everyone find Vega? Where should they go to? What should they look forward to next? Yeah. Uh, so you can find me, uh, at Barnaby with two E's at the end, uh, on Twitter, you can find Vega at Vega protocol or at Vega.xyz. Um, the most exciting thing that's coming up, um, for anyone who knows Vega will know that we sort of did the token launch, um, and then the restricted mainnet launch, um, just around a year ago, um, restricted mainnet was kind of like the pre-merge Ethereum proof of stake. It was kind of like build the governance network to get the staking happening get everything moving, but it sort of without the risk of all the of people trying to do real activity on it. Uh, we are, I think there's less than 10 issues left. You can actually check on GitHub. You can see the, 
the boards on GitHub, but there's less than 10 issues left, I think, now to be closed out on GitHub before we can make a release that should enable people to start creating markets and trading in mainnet. Um, so, you know, that's going to be coming out really soon. We're going to run some things called mainnet simulations. Those are really fun for the community because we are working with real professional market makers who are going to provide liquidity on testnet. Um, there will be really strong incentives in terms of Vega tokens for participating in these simulations. So basically being a participating trader, um, using the network. And the goal is to make something as, as lifelike as possible before it's real money stress tested a little bit. Um, we're going to run a couple of those on, on our testnet, and then there'll be some running on the, um, the testnet that the validators operate. And then once kind of, while that's all happening, there will be things like governance votes going on that are required to kind of enable trading on Vega and to connect up you know, more assets to the, the bridge and stuff like that. And um, you know, once all that sort of gets finished and everything is uh, everything's looking good, there'll be sort of a final governance vote and then um, people will start creating markets and trading. So really, really exciting time for Vega because in the next, uh, probably about the next month or so, um, we will go from being kind of, you know, pre, pre main net in terms of the main trading functionality to actually seeing that uh, live in the wild and, and giving people the opportunity to try it out for real. Excited for it. Thank you so much, Barney, again, and I look forward to your success. Awesome. Thanks for having me.